0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we of course must recall that Paul is in a section of the this letter to the Corinthian church where he is correcting them for things that he had heard about them. He's already dealt with the fact that they were very divided, segregated into various camps following specific teachers and probably most specifically rebelling against Paul and beginning to despise his ministry. He dealt with that problem in the first three or four chapters, and then in chapter five, he dealt with the issue of an egregious form of sin, a flagrant foul, so to speak, uh, of the man who was in a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law, and so he dealt with that. Now here in chapter six, he begins the chapter by dealing with another form of disunity in the church in that they had been actually suing each other. Some kind of legal struggle had broken out in the Corinthian church. And so it says in verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so here, what we're seeing is that grievances between Christians had apparently been taken to the civil courts for... Settlement. Now, the Corinthian experience was, in a lot of ways, opposite to the way that the church in the very first early days in Jerusalem began. You might remember that when the gospel began to break out in Jerusalem, Peter preached and 3,000 Jews were saved there 10 days after Christ had ascended. And one of the first reactions was that the church began to live in a real communal kind of sense. many people sold land, sold possessions, and they shared with one another they laid down their lives for one another. Here we see the opposite of those early days in Jerusalem. The Corinthians were bickering in court over property more than likely and Submitting to Roman standards rather than the standard of Christ, which is love. And the Corinthians apparently were not willing to put up with any injustice or inequality aimed towards themselves. So Paul said in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do not, verse 3 you know that we are to judge angels, how much more than matters pertaining to this life. Now, again, as I've mentioned, Paul uses the phrase, do you not know? Uh, He'll do this often in this chapter and also in the uh, totality of 1 Corinthians. Now, what was it that Paul thought that they already knew? Well, he says it there, that saints will judge the world, number one, and that saints are to judge the angels, number two. Now, this seems to be an expansion of Jesus's teaching. You might remember before he went to the cross, Jesus announced to his disciples that he was assigning to them a kingdom, that they would eat and drink at table with him in that kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a slightly mysterious kind of phrase for, for many, but here we see an unfolding of that doctrine. Paul says, look, the day is coming where the saints will judge the world, and the uh, saints will judge the angelic realm. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that if we endure, we will also reign with him, if we deny him He also will deny us. And then in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, in speaking to the churches, said, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And then finally, When you get to Revelation chapter 20, you see in verse 4 of that chapter, thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was given. And, uh, And then this judgment takes place, and there are those who come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This also seems to be predicted all the way back in the prophecies of Daniel, because Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 had a vision of four great beasts. The first one was a lion with eagle's wings, which represented Babylon, then a bear with three ribs in its mouth, which represented the Medo-Persian empire, then a leopard with four wings and heads, which represented Greece, and then a Greece, and then a different beast with ten horns, strong, who had iron teeth, and an additional horn with eyes and a mouth, plucking up the three other horns. And that was Rome. And then this is what he says. He says, and he shall speak words against the Most High, that additional horn. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time. Times and a half time. That's three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Now listen to this. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So this day is spoken of Where after the Antichrist comes, it will be taken, the kingdom, and given to God's people. And uh, specifically called the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom, God's kingdom, will be an everlasting one. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. So it appears, as you put all of those passages together that a day is coming where believers are involved in leadership of the known world with Jesus. So the conclusion that Paul was coming to was, look, if that's true, then trivial cases and matters pertaining to this life should have been no problem for the Corinthians to adjudicate. Paul writes here in the light of, the, of Roman law, which allowed Jews to apply their own law on property matters. And so Christians who were not yet distinguished as a separate class from Judaism must have had that same privilege and ability to be able to adjudicate their own property matters. So Paul appealed here to them, hey, you know, you guys should be able to do this on your own. You've got the word of God. You've got the spirit of God. You've got one another. Surely you can handle this. Now, I should mention that there were times where Paul would appeal to the governing authorities. He appealed to a Roman commander, to a Roman governor, and even to the emperor himself at one at one point. Paul's problem was not with the use of the court, but with interpersonal disputes between believers being settled in court, that was embarrassing to the church. So it's fine for us to go to court to assert our church property line rights or our our own personal rights, but when it comes to two believers in an interpersonal dispute, that should be settled in the body of Christ. Paul then goes on in verse 4 to say, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The non-believing world, obviously. He says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now this was a body life at its worst, brother against brother. And Paul in laying this out asked a fascinating question. He asked, "Why not rather suffer wrong?" You know, why not rather suffer wrong? This is uh you know, a very difficult question for The modern mind to grapple with? Why not lay down my rights and accept that wrong has been done to me? But the reality is, unless we adopt that Christ-like attitude, we're really not going to get very far in life. Uh, Because if we're waiting for everyone to treat us justly in order to move forward, We're going to have a very difficult go of life. We just won't get very far. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 38 to 42. He said, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, in that teaching from Jesus, he starts out by saying, you've heard that it was said. And so the question is, what did the Old Testament say? Well, it said an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. But why did the Old Testament say that? Well, it said that to control in Israel anger and violence, you know, over the top reactions to personal injustice. And it did that. By removing the possibility of vengeance, you know, you had to go to court. You couldn't take matters into your own hands. And secondly, it limited the punishment to fit the crime, you know, an eye for an eye. Because, you know, our human nature, when rage takes over, wants death as a response for an eye. So it restrained revenge and retaliation. So what did the religious leaders say? Well, they had begun to say that we have to do that. It's a duty that we have to perform. Not just something that God has given to us to kind of restrict vengeance and retaliation, but something that we have to do. Somebody takes your eye, you have to take their eye. But Jesus came along and he said, no, that's not the case. You can, as my people, you don't have to resist the one who is evil. Do not resist them they slap you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. So in all of these exhortations from Jesus, they're very challenging. They're not really talking about civil life, you know, as in we should have no police or ever have self-defense. They're not really talking about nations. You know, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 have more to say about Nations uh, have nothing to do with really state-based relationships. They're also not ridiculous statements from Jesus. You know, we can protect our children or fight for justice or close a bank account or say no to a drunk who asks for more money or something like that. And they're not impossible statements. In other words, we have to defend our families and our loved ones. And they're not mechanical statements either. You know, only if someone strikes me on the cheek specifically. No, you have to know the spirit of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling us as his people that we are above the law. We are way above it. We have new natures in Christ Jesus, and he wants to interact or change the way we react to wrong that is done to us personally. So think about those categories. Slapped on the cheek, that's disrespect. So, can you put up with some disrespect to sue you and take your tunic tunic that was you know very unheard of, but it was indecent Someone forces you to go one mile, which Roman soldiers could do go a second mile, you know do a little bit more than is being required of you, and do not refuse the person that asks each one of these is personal. Jesus is pinpointing our tendency to vehemently stand up for self. And so this teaching of Christ uh, is very much like what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know, why wouldn't you rather suffer wrong? Would you not rather be defrauded? That's the spirit of Jesus that says, you know, I'm not going to stand up for myself in those ways. I don't always have to do that. And when we react this way, like Jesus would have us react, and as Jesus did react, that will lead to more open doors. But we must get over being agitated by wrongful personal insult or minor injustices. Then he goes on to say in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here Paul reminded the Corinthians that the non-believing court system was not part of God's kingdom. You know he says that the righteous will not inherit the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, they weren't regenerated. They weren't related to Christ. Why go to them to have your matters settled? Now, in his list of unrighteous behavior, he mentions verse 9, a very hot-button subject in our culture. He says, nor men who practice homosexuality. Uh, other translations take those phrases, that, that phrase, and say it in different ways. Some thinking that it's not one group, but two groups. You know, um, Some think it's not just men who practice homosexuality, but uh, one group, male prostitutes, a second group, those who practice homosexuality. Or some say it's both men are included, nor men who have sex with men, as the NIV says. And of course, lesbians are included in Romans chapter 1. Now, this activity, homosexuality, is very characteristic of Greco-Roman society. Plato praised it. In his teachings, Nero, at the time this letter was written, was actually about to marry a boy. Fourteen of the first fifteen Roman emperors were homosexual or bisexual. And so here, Paul, you know, again, confirms the biblical position that it is a forbidden practice for someone to engage in. So he holds that out to the Corinthian believers. And, you know, for us, the idea is that in a broken and fallen world, you would expect not only all kinds of rebellion against God, including sexually, But you would also expect that if the world is truly broken, that there are going to be many different broken desires that are embedded in human beings just as a result of depravity. Some of those desires are cultivated over time through sin, but other desires are just present because of the brokenness of this world. And then some of those desires are put into a person because they're sinned against. And that goes for this... Particular sin of homosexuality as well. So, even if the desire is there inside of someone because of the brokenness of humanity, it doesn't mean that they are required to act out upon that desire. Scripturally, we have for believers the option of heterosexual marriage or uh, to make a commitment to a life of celibate singleness unto God. Jesus talked about that. Paul talked about it, as we'll see when we get to chapter 7. So, I'm just mentioning that because it's such a prominent feature of our current world to think about homosexuality and beyond, of course, as well. Paul says, and such were some of you. You know, many of you were living all these different lives. Homosexuals, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy drunkards, revilers, swindlers, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So beautiful, great testimony there. In Corinth, many people had been saved from that old life. Now in verse 12, Paul turns his attention to sex and sexual immorality once again. Now, in chapter 5, he was dealing with a very flagrant version of sexual sin. A man had his father's wife. But here, it's more of a run-of-the-mill sexual immorality. And in verse 12, he introduces this subject by saying, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, when he says this, it seems that he's saying, let me talk to you about Christian liberty. There is liberty in Christ. I am a free man. All things are lawful for me. But many people think that really what Paul is doing is he's quoting the Corinthians who had made this into a slogan in their lives. Some of your Bibles, as you read this verse, probably have quotation marks, all things are lawful for me in quotations, or all things are lawful for me, you know, both phrases, both times it's mentioned in quotations. But Paul, his commentary seems to be, but not everything's helpful, and I will not be dominated by anything. So, though it's true that we are free in Christ, there are some qualifications. Paul was concerned with two things. Is an activity helping me? And number two is an activity mastering me. Does it help me or does it, and does it master me? Paul knew that the Corinthians were hurt and mastered by their sexual sins. You know, he saw in them a church that had been brought to its knees by immorality. You know, Proverbs 7, verse 22, speaks of the man who goes after the immoral woman as an ox goes to the slaughter. And Paul saw the Corinthian church on their way to the slaughterhouse. And many Christians will often violate the simple principle that Paul holds out here. You know, that, look, there are some things that are helpful. You don't want to be dominated. And you've got to pay attention to that. Now, Paul has not yet pulled out the big guns of his argument against sexual immorality, but this simple truth ought to deter us from engaging in sexual immorality, even without reading the rest of Paul's argument, to think about, is it helpful, and is it dominating me? You see, many people want to know where the line is, and some will say that there's nothing wrong With sexual immorality. But Paul is saying, no, it actually isn't helping you and it is enslaving you. You don't want to be brought to your knees by any behavior. To be free does not merely mean that we are free to to do and act, but that we are free not to do, not to act. Now, another quote that the Corinthians seemingly said in verse 13 is, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Here we see that the Corinthians argued that sex was like food, and the body was like the stomach. So, you know, their argument was simply, my stomach wants food, so I should eat. And my body wants sex, so I should engage in some form of sexual activity. But Paul addressed that argument in two ways. Uh, number one, he said, God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, foods and the stomach aren't eternal in nature. You know, you're, you're dealing with physical, temporal things. God has no eternal plan for the stomach itself. And no spiritual purpose for the food but you on the other hand are eternal so you're you're of more significance than your stomach and you're more significance than food but the other bigger argument that paul used is that the body is not meant for sexual immor- immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body you see they were saying the argument that food is meant for the stomach and sexual activity is meant for the body but paul said actually you've messed it up. Your analogy doesn't even work because the as as the stomach needs the food, the body actually doesn't need sexual activity. The body needs the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So, you know, in a sense, you could say that their argument, you know, about food and the stomach, you could say that the body is designed for purity, you know, because And and is designed for uh, heterosexual marriage and sexual activity there, if anything, uh, because uh, it is outside of the confines of heterosexual marriage that you get unwanted pregnancies, terminated babies, sexually transmitted disease, rape, incest, adultery, broken families, shattered lives, sex slavery, forced prostitution, greed, murders, poverty, and the like. But inside a heterosexual marriage, you know, that's supposed to be where love is, where children are raised and born, you know, safety, all of that. So here, Paul, though, announces the body is designed for God. We're to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Then he says in verse 14, and he says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, we're not separate from our bodies, but we're one with our bodies. God has an eternal plan for these bodies of ours, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, you know, he mentioned that about the stomach, but really the whole body is a seed of the eternal bodies that we will receive from the Lord. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Now again, six times Paul asks this question, do you not know? He'd been speaking here of stewardship, that we must use our bodies for what God intended. And in a few moment, moments he's going to speak of ownership, the fact that we have been bought by the blood of Christ. But now here he speaks of membership. Who we are joined to. We are members of Christ. This is a very mystical argument for sexual purity. But Paul is teaching us that once we are in Christ, we are we have a new membership. This speaks of the body of Jesus. You see, on, on earth, Jesus used his physical members, his body. He broke bread with his hands. He spoke the Sermon on the Mount with his mouth. He walked to the Syrophoenician woman, With his feet, he saw the need of the people with his eyes, and he heard the cries of the lepers with his ears. But now that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, we are his spiritual members. We are his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears, and his mouth. And he wants to use these bodies of ours. Therefore, it is not our right, because we are members with him, to use them for sexual immorality. They must be sanctified and useful for the Master. But he goes on to say, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, and he says, look, there's a connection between your physical actions and your spiritual well-being. You're actually becoming connected to the person that you are engaging with in sexual immorality. Just as Adam and Eve became one the right way, so the man and the harlot became one the wrong way. Now, Paul isn't saying that this constitutes a marriage, but that there is a deep and unhealthy connection between people engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage. Many men and women ignore this reality and give themselves away sexually. In a sense, what Paul is announcing is that there is no such thing as casual sex. That's a major trap. Uh, It all is significant and meaningful because you're connected to each other. But he, verse 17, who is joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. This is where our connection should be to the Lord. We must stay in step with him. Now, this is where the church comes in. I want you to notice Paul's heart. He longs to help the Corinthians. You know, statistics demonstrate that not many of us grew up without sexual abuse or exposure to pornography or sexual activity before marriage or parents who remain faithful to one another. Every once in a while somebody is able to be raised and live a life that has not been exposed to any of those things, but most people have been exposed to those things. And so we need each other. We need that connection to the Lord. Flee, he says, verse 18, from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Here, Paul exhorts us to run away from sexual immorality. It's one area he encourages us to cowardice, if you could say it like that. We're not to stand up to it, but we're to run from it. Joseph is a great example of this in Genesis chapter 39. He saw it as a sin against God. He left his garment in Potiphar's wife's hand, and he ran and fled outside. His private walk with the Lord helped him in his public walk with the Lord, and he ran. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Verse 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here we see that The Spirit resides within us as believers. We are no longer our own. We do not belong to ourselves. But we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Look, the price that has been paid for you and me is intense and immense. So for us to think that we are free, once believers, to come into sexual immorality, we are in error. No, we must glorify God with our bodies because we have been bought with a price. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.